Ding, 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 ding. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of geographically challenged friends explore movies through trivia as an excuse to keep their friendships alive. I'm one of these friends and today's host, Nick, and with me is... Tom and KJ. All right. Great to have you back as always. Additionally, joining us as a guest for this episode is... Pat. Good to have you back, Pat. Pat and Tom worked on a bunch of shows together in Holy Cross, including Timon of Athens. You may remember Pat from our Broken Blossoms, Bride of Frankenstein, and Michael Hahn episodes, making Pat our most visited guest to date at four episodes. Pat still conveniently likes movies. For those joining us for the first time, we start off each round with a movie quiz, which consists of two rounds of questions to determine who will earn today's trivia crown. Then once the fierce competition is over, we followed up with our famous movie rant, Where Anything Goes. KJ, tell us about today's movie. This episode, we'll be jumping into 1949's film noir mystery thriller, The Third Man, directed by Carol Reed, who is also known for The Odd Man Out, The Fallen Idol, and the musical Oliver. Other movies in theater with The Third Man would be Father of the Bride, starring Spencer Tracy and Liz Taylor, Guilty of Treason, and Disney's Cinderella. Tom will be quizzing us today. Tom, tell us about The Third Man. The Third Man follows Holly Martin, a dime store novelist who comes to a post-World War II Vienna after receiving a job offer from an old college chum, Harry Lyme. However, when he arrives in Vienna, he discovers that Harry's been killed in a car accident. He digs deep into it and finds that there might be some misplay. Apparently, in according to some accounts, two men carried Harry's body away from the auto accident. And according to some accounts, maybe there was a third man. As he digs in, he finds that in the world of Vienna, you can be sucked into a crime underworld. And he wants to discover if his good friend Harry Lyme had succumbed to that underworld. Uh, this was a, a very, very popular movie when it was released. AFI ranked it as number one in British cinema. Um, and I am very excited to bring it to you guys today. And so, Nick, I have a question for you. What is the one word you would use to describe this film? Subtitleless. KJ? Shadowy. Pat? Shadowy. Shadowy. That was hey. the same word I was going to use. Oh, yeah. wow, that works. And for me, I said Dutch. Ugh, yeah, that was my second word, Tom. Mm. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> I'm waiting to hear more context on that later. It's time for movie quiz. We are going to have two rounds of two questions, and. In our round, gentlemen, welcome to Vienna. You may visit any and all of the four sections of this marvelous city in search of the third man. All questions are in the form of a riddle related to Carol Reed's magnificent film. So, Pat, which zone would you like to visit first? The American zone, the British zone, the French zone, or the Russian zone? Let's go to the Russian zone. All right, going to the Russian zone. Dubro otro. <laughs> Close enough. <laughs> it's time for question one. Here is the riddle. My music is measured, 
but never by the meter. Any hints? <laughs> I could give you a hint. It is a what? Locked in? Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess I'll say locked in. Locked in. All right, Nick, since you answered last, you have to go first. What is the answer? <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> the guy is an author. I I'm going to say books. It's a book. Okay. Uh, I think, Pat, you locked in second, right? I did, yeah. I, I was going to go with, I'm not sure if this is what you're going for, but I was going to go with the zither. Going with the zither. Oh. Okay. And KJ? Um, I had two in my head, but I'm locking in with the score, which may not make a lot of sense. But the other one was the classical guitar. I don't know if that was the instrument we heard most in the movie, but... That's the zither. Is the, uh... Oh, that's the zither. Got mm -hmm. it. So the score, the score. Okay. Uh, so no points. The <laughs> It was... Um... The answer was the cuckoo clock, the music of the cuckoo clock. The music is measured, but never by the meter. It's measured by time. That, ah. <laughs> that was the idea. <laughs> Can you refresh my memory on the cuckoo clock? <laughs> okay. So <laughs> this is a great start. Um, <laughs> so the... in Italy, under the Borgia. <laughs> yeah. So what I'm referencing is probably the most famous speech in this this play, which is um, Harry Lyme, Morrison Wells' character, as they're leaving the great Ferris wheel, uh, mentions that, you know, talks about um, how kind of innovation requires conflict, right? And he says, basically, under the Borgias, we had, um, you know, murder, theft, uh, rebellion, and we got Leonardo da Vinci and the Renaissance. And in Switzerland, there was 500 years of brotherly love and democracy. And what did they produce? The cuckoo clock, mm -hmm. um, which not exactly accurate. It was produced in Bavaria, but you know, whatever, <laughs> it's all the same, which is apparently a monologue that Orson Welles wrote and inserted into the film. It was not in the original script or book. Uh, but I wonder, was interested in this monologue uh, because I was curious what people actually thought about that observation and and so forth. How do you think of, like about conflict and innovation or conflict in art and how that comes about? Was there anything else in the movie to support that? To support the idea that, that conflict requires, uh, excuse me, innovation requires conflict? Right. Was that a theme of the movie, do you think? It could be in the sense that we're, you know, we are living in a world that's sort of torn apart by peace, right? That, you know, there's war. And then there's this this piece which requires like a bunch of powers running in and kind of tearing it apart, you know, demanding um, demanding their section, and it results in a pretty robust underground, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think in many ways it's a it's also a commentary on the movie itself. I mean, the the third man is sort of like as a film, it's it is it's a movie that is very tied to its time and location. You know, it's sort of like you can't really imagine this movie being made at any other time than post-war Vienna. Um, it's sort of in how the, the place is structured. I mean, I remember reading when one of the classes that I studied this movie and that, that basically like um, Carol Reed very specifically and Graham Greene, like they rushed to get this movie done specifically because they wanted to film it in Vienna before they managed to rebuild it. So they were actually filming in the bombed out rubble of Vienna specifically because they wanted to get there in time to film it. Um, and I think it's it's in some ways a celebration, not a celebration, but it's sort of a memorial of sort of what 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 Vienna was and sort of what it had to become after the war and sort of this hollow shell of sort of its its sort of um, 
of, of sort of the opulence that it had once represented in Europe, that Vienna was sort of the, the capital of, of art and music and all this stuff. And this is what kind of came out of it. So in some ways it's, it's sort of not true in the, this, the statement that Tommy referring to, because Vienna had been this sort of, you know, center of culture that's completely destroyed by war. But in many ways, the things that are coming out of it afterwards are also including this film. In some ways, you could argue only come out because of the war and the destruction that had happened before. Along with uh, Pat's points there, we've brought this up in other discussions, but it's really interesting how movies truly become time capsules of an era gone by. And I also thought that was fascinating that they were recording this in the rubble of the war, which was not too far behind when this film was actually made. So regardless of the actual movie, it was just like almost historical to go back to that time. And you even see that to your point about Vienna being, you know, the, very polished and, and, and all of that in the past. The, the female lead, her building looks like it could have been something amazing at one point and it has all this detail and it's just in ruin and it's just all dirty and disheveled. It's, it's, it's fascinating that that is now a hovel, which once probably was a palace. So it's interesting to see that. Yeah, this, this world is, um, it, it's decaying around this kind of beautiful core or beautiful origin. Um, yeah, but I, I think that's a good point that you're making, Pat, that the film itself is sort of, um, it, it's sort of existing in this conflict between does conflict or chaos result in some nice product? Because you wouldn't have this movie without that that particular conflict. I mean, it's so bound to post-World War II Vienna. Um, you know, but at the same time, the kind of innovation you end up getting is, a, a, you know, a movie that's sort of... Um, romanticizing in some way the rubble and before then the old vienna was you know the, the land of mozart and and beethoven you know and, and all of this great music yeah i mean i i remember we had a there was a professor i had in college who had a, a sort of theory which you know it's not obviously true all the time but he had this theory that like oftentimes great art doesn't necessarily come out of um of a crisis or that kind of thing but it all oftentimes it comes out of um a culture's overcoming of a crisis, you know, and his examples, he used to offer things like, you know, go back to the ancient Greeks and their victory over the Persians. And that results in sort of the Athenian culture, or he used to kind of point to like England during the, um, the, um, you know, after the, uh, their victory over the Spanish and Spanish Armada and you get Shakespeare and Marlowe and this kind of stuff. And even in say the 19th century with European sort of victories over Napoleon, you get a lot of, um, you know, European art that comes out of this. So this, so there's that, that I think kind of fits in with that conflict idea that, that oftentimes the, the sort of victory over conflict, this though doesn't feel that because even though sort of the war is over, um, a Austria was sort of on the losing side of the war, but I think that there's even an argument to be made that World War II was so destructive in terms of what it did that this is not this isn't sort of a rebirth that's coming out of this. This is as as Tom said, this is sort of decay. Yeah, there doesn't seem to be a lot of hope at the end of this movie, <laughs> you know. And the, the movie ends with um, with our main character Holly Martin uh, kind of waiting outside the gates of the graveyard for. Um, the female lead, who he, he clearly has a crush on, and who is Harry Lime's old old girlfriend Anna, and it ends with just Anna not looking at him and walking past him, um, and that's how this movie ends. It ends with disconnect in a disconnected place, uh, 
it, it feels like there's no victory at the end of this movie. Um, and I, I think that's a, a kind of a, a big part of, you know, what you're saying, Pat, where this does not feel like we've had the the repair or the restoration movement needed after a conflict. We're still waiting for that restoration. And it, it's almost like the, the, the rackets, the penicillin racket and all the other ones are almost like false starts, you know, um, to what hopefully what one would hope would be a, a kind of a restored city. All right, great. So I'll throw this to Nick. Where would you like to go, Nick? The American zone, the British zone, or the French zone? USA. All right. Welcome, partner. <laughs> Howdy. Howdy. Why not? Uh, <laughs> here's the riddle. It's time for question two. Too long to be holy, too evergreen to be leafless, too lowbrow for a lecture. And this riddle answers the question, who? Locked in. Locked in. Locked in. All right, KJ, since you locked in last, you have to go first. What do you got? I'm going to go with um, Anna Schmidt. Okay, thank you. Um, Pat, I think you locked in yeah. second. I'm going to go with Holly. Yeah. Okay. And Nick, what do you have? Let's mix it up. I'm going with Harry Lime. All right. And the points go to Pat. Yes, the uh, too long to be holy. Holly is H-O-L-L-Y instead of H-O-L-Y. Uh, holly, the holly tree. It's an evergreen tree. And of course, our character, he is far too lowbrow to give a lecture on modern art, as we see, or on the modern novel, as we see in this uh, film. I think he is a great kind of detective figure he's the he's not a detective but he's the detective character in this noir um and what makes him i think so interesting is he's sort of so bad at it to in a, in a certain extent he's so kind of bumbling and he needs so much help and i was wondering what you guys thought of this sort of unconventional noir center i i thought in some ways it was a commentary on um on Americans in general, because it's interesting to watch him, especially, you know, he's, he's often being told by people that you just like, be quiet, sit, like step back, be quiet. Don't keep making a scene. You know, and I'm reminded there's like one where the, um, the four policemen are walking through the bar and Anna, he's with Anna at the bar and there's sort of the four international policemen walk by and he starts like, he just starts yelling at them. He has nothing, he doesn't even need to do anything and he starts causing trouble. And I think a lot of these, you know, I think the idea that you get is that a lot of these guys, these Europeans are trying to keep their heads down and just not cause a scene, not cause trouble, just avoid everything as much as they can. And this kind of American comes through and just starts, you know, it's very sort of like, a, you know, you know, Graham Greene, the writer, you know, the, the screenwriter is British. And I think he has this image of Americans. If you read some of his other works, he thinks Americans very much are these kind of like, they just bash things down and sort of make big shows and big scenes and they cause problems. Um, and that in many ways seems to be what he ended up doing in the screenplay with this character is that he, that's, that's often what this character is doing. is just causing problems um, where, I mean, I guess, you could argue they should exist because actually he ends up uncovering, and this might also be a commentary, he ends up solving some of the problems. He does eventually, they find Harry Lyme, he ends up getting the stuff, but the ways he goes about it are often a bit um, um, destructive in how he does things. Yeah, he's, he's you know, he's, his shoulders are very big, right? Uh, metaphorically, anyway. Um, 
it, and it it's interesting because he is a lot of times back on his heels right which you, you can compare it to like sam spade sam spade from the maltese falcon who is the you know the archetype of the noir detective um and sam is smarter than everybody and he just knows the world right i mean that's that's part of the maltese falcon is that the the main character just knows that san francisco better than anyone and that's what makes him equipped to do his job here it's like taking sam spade dropping him into a foreign land but also he doesn't necessarily have the the kind of right instincts either so his his kind of uncovering of things is sort of um yeah as you're saying pat it's kind of like this like blunt instrument that kind of crashes through walls as opposed to finds the door uh but you know he he's also has to kind of be led there by people like Callaway, by um, by Anna Schmidt, you know, and he's sort of pinned pinned between the two of them. Anna wants him to kind of leave Harry alone. Obviously, Callaway wants wants justice, um, and and yeah, so he ends up kind of being used in a sense by Callaway as well in order to get at what he needs to get at. And his his discovery of Harry is also kind of accidental. Isn't it? It's just he kind of runs into him in the street with the cat. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Which that. is a great scene. Yeah. He didn't really have much to do with that. <laughs> it's just an occur and he's slightly actually he's pretty drunk at that time too. Mm -hmm. So it is interesting to see. What one of the other scenes that happens to him that I, I actually got a kick at it because the movie references it multiple times is he's running away from these people chasing him. And he gets bit by a parrot. And multiple times in this movie, they're like, what happened to your hand? I got bit by a parrot. And, it ha and then the lady had, what happened? Parrot. <laughs> like, it was just so, like a weird reference that I actually really enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, and like, oh, don't be a fool. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. That's what he says, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think that's that's part of it too. Is is just yeah. there? There is a kind of a sense of which I had forgotten. You know, I, I hadn't watched this movie maybe in ten years before, before this. But I had forgotten. Like he is like bumbling a lot of the time. He is like drunk and and you know either in the way or just you know not like not getting the message. He's not a sharp like private eye or anything like that. He's just yeah. kind of I'm kind of going mm. in this trajectory and the the, the, mm. the the mystery is starting to get solved as I keep throwing myself in this direction. But when you were talking about the Maltese Falcon, I am positive that is the most referenced movie on this podcast that we have yet to see. So maybe <laughs> one day we will watch it as a group. Yeah, I suggested it. I suggested it. Yeah. Yeah. I was worried that it was too, it would be like doing Star Wars episode four. Not like a, it was just I mean, two of the, eight of, the, of the three hosts haven't seen it, right, kid? You've never seen it. No, I haven't. I, I think uh, this yeah. was my first noir film. I, I Well, unless yeah. you count like Dick Tracy, I'm like compared to Warren Beatty. <laughs> Mm -hmm. you know he, he is pretty sharp and <laughs> <laughs> why aren't they all wearing unique color clothing <laughs> yeah. how are you supposed to tell who's him <laughs> mm -hmm. tom those were some interesting riddles i can't wait to hear what you have for us in round two we'll be right back after this quick commercial break talking pictures trivia theater presents a screaming lapel pin production the Jane of My Youth, a coming-of-age story of young love, read by me, Tom. 
Chapter 11 Finale For a moment within the apocalypse, the world froze. Michael stepped forward and looked down the mountain he was standing on at the bloodied town below. In the far distance, beyond the great, blood-covered penguin charging towards him, he could see a dog licking the hand of what appeared to be a dead body. The dog licked for a time, then laid his head on the chest of the dead person, keeping still. Across the street from where he lay, an apartment building burned. Bodies streamed out the front door. Bodies fell from balconies, the fire illuminating the dog. Michael could see he was licking his owner's face. The image unfroze time. Mom, we have to do something, he yelled to Jill. This is the worship ground of the goddess Phoenix. There has to be something here we can use. I don't... I don't know. I think we might just be too late. Wait, Jane said, stepping forward. Dr. Mabusa and I found something. What? he yelled. It's the pin. It can shoot a ray of power from it. That's what happened when we placed it into the magical rectangular prism. It shot a beam into the void, creating an opening into hell. But what can we do? We don't have the prism. Jill stepped in. I think I have an idea. What? We are in the mountain of the regurgitating phoenix. Here we worship the divine forces of Kronos and Kairos. Maybe we can call on them. Jill began to pray. From the woods of the mountain emerged a cadre of women in gray robes. Sisters, Jill called. We need to pray to the goddess Phoenix. The women surrounded Michael in the form of a rectangle. They began to chant in Latin. You guys are mine, see? The penguin roared. I'm going to rip you apart. The women began to chant in unison. The penguin lifted his wing and smashed a row of chanting women. Their blood and innards smacked against his and Jane's bodies. Responding in pure fear, Michael lifted the screaming lapel pin, still clutched in his hand. Move away! Return to your home! We here embrace Her Majesty, the regurgitating phoenix! I call upon her from her avatar that I embrace. Stand down, penguin! Michael held up the lapel pin. Nothing happened. Oh, you have the pen, see? Well, my goodness, that has no power without the rectangular prism. <laughs> Let Kronos reign. The penguin lifted the wing, ready to finally destroy Michael. Suddenly, Jane ran forward, putting her arms around Michael's head. The pin, the box, they're just stand-ins for the people who fight in their name. Be the pin and I will be the box. They both closed their eyes and kissed. Jane's body glowed with the power of the rectangular prism, and the power passed from Jane through Michael and burst through the pin. A tremendous scream echoed from the mouth of the phoenix as a bright ray shot out of its mouth and hit the penguin. 
Oh no, see, you found love. Only love combined with a magnificent screaming lapel pin can defeat me. No! The penguin's body heated with the power of the pin and suddenly exploded. Thousands of gallons of blood rose in the air and began to rain down on the city, washing bodies out from the street. Hundreds of tons of penguin guns dropped from the sky, crushing cars, homes, and an oblivious jogger. Jane and Michael broke apart. The pin dimmed. The scream stopped. My God, you did it, Jane. No, Michael. We did it. Jill stood up and approached them. The job isn't over yet. The opening between the worlds still exists. In order to close it, we need to restore the balance between Kronos and Kairos, the subjective and the objective. All life is ruled by the balance of those forces of reality. But what should we do? You need to walk to the edge of the cliff and jump. If your faith is true, you shall rise in the air and become the constellation of Kronos and Kairos. But mom, if I do this, we won't see each other again. I know, son, but when I look into the sky at night in a world safe from the great and terrible penguin, I will be comforted to see you looking down upon me. Michael hugged his mother. Okay, Mom. Well, I'll see you real soon then. Tears welled up in his eyes. He grabbed Jane's hand. Together they ran and leaped off the cliff. Their bodies hit the ground and they died instantly, obviously. But their souls rose into the air and transformed together into the shape of a phoenix and a penguin. Kronos and Kairos objective time and the subjective moment, forces in balance. When they did, the dead resurrected, standing up, the blood dried in the street, the pile of discarded limbs crawled and kicked their way back to their possessors and magically reattached themselves. The owner of the dog sat up and petted his good boy. The only bodies that remained were those exploded corpses of Jane and Michael, Jill looked up at the great image of her savior floating in the air. That's my boy. All hell, the regurgitating phoenix and her prophet, Lionel the duck. And so, Jane and Michael went into the void between the worlds, as constellations of stars do when they finally pass from this reality. And they waited, and they waited. Concealed in the darkness, first determined to protect the earth, but after a while, finding themselves controlled by the eternal loneliness of the roles that had forever consumed them. This has been a Talking Pictures Theater presentation of a Screaming Lapel Pin production. The Jane of My Youth, a coming-of-age story of young love. This week, Screaming Lapel Pins has on sale the asthmatic mongoose. And lastly, I, Tom, 
want to dedicate this show to our best-selling pin, the dilapidated penguin. May our dark lord one day rise again. Pick one up wherever screaming lapel pins are sold. And we're back. Before we jump back into round two, Pat, we're going to ask you that critical question, just like we've done in the past, but maybe you got another unique answer for what snack do you recommend while watching The Third Man? So I, I would just say this is this to me is like this is a popcorn movie. This is a classic entertaining film. Like I would just if I'm having a snack, it's popcorn. Like I'm not doing anything crazy. I'm not going anything out of the way. This is just like this is a popcorn movie to me. It's a classic. No M&M ratio. No, nothing. Or just, I'm a, I mean, maybe if you want to go for another classic, you get your Sour Patch Kids. But this to me is oh. just like this is a classic film. It needs a classic movie snack to me. This is this is like a core classic film. Are we putting butter on this, or what are we doing? Sure, of course. I don't think you can have it with butter. You know. <laughs> or the synthetic. Yeah, yeah, oil. yeah, yeah. I mean, whatever we're calling it. Yeah, you know, <laughs> the thing that only uh, that ends up just sogging up the popcorn at the top, and then there's nothing on the bottom of it. Yeah, that, that's good. You guys ever had kettle corn? Not a fan. I love Not it. Not a fan. Um, it's, oh, no, I, sweet, I try it. Sweet. If you haven't tried it, it's uh, a it's a different I've it's a different never experience. Had it, than, yeah. Kettle corn. Not a fan. I think yeah. you got a sweet tooth though, KJ. Oh, I do. I do. Yeah. Yeah. Kettle yeah. corn is is. Obnoxious. It doesn't get all over your hands like the butter. Uh, yeah. It's too sweet. It's like sugar on my popcorn. Yeah, it's it's, it's delicious. Mm. Gross. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't like popcorn also. I think that's going to oh. be my... <laughs> the, the texture, Tom? What's the... It's just there's nothing there. It's like eating air. I... Well, that's, <laughs> I just... well, that's why you need the butter or the, the sugar. Yeah, or the... You got a little, little salt. I could just, I, yeah, I could just put butter on like bread or like a sweet bread or... <laughs> but that's why popcorn is like the ultimate movie snack because you sit there eating it over like two hours and you're having bread are you going to, to eat do. bread for two hours Tom's like <laughs> i would like toast what kind of bread do you have for me to bring to the movies that's why popcorn is, good movies. Go to movie theaters with toast. is this a byob i imagine like a, a plate with a knife and just cutting <laughs> That man over there is putting back. <laughs> okay, I think right. popcorn and sour patch versus yeah. a loaf of bread wins yeah. for me. <laughs> Tom, on that note, what do you got for us next? Okay, so I think the next question goes to KJ. So, which zone would you like to visit, Britain or France? Uh, let's go to Britain. All right. Cheerio, mate. Hey, cheerio, Tom. <laughs> All right. It's time for question three. This question answers who. If he or she were a shade of green, they would be limey, but not emerald. Uh, locked in? I'm locked in. Locked in? All right, KJ, you locked in last. What do you have? Is it as simple as Harry Lime? I mean, there was lime in the question, lime in the answer. I don't know. Harry Lime? Okay. Uh, Nick, I think you locked in second. Emerald, but not limey. I'm going to say... Limey, not emerald. Wait. Limey, not emerald. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, that changes they, everything. He or she would be limey, but not emerald. That is going to be Major Callaway. Not Callahan. Callaway. And Pat, what do you have? Yeah, I was, I was going to go with Harry Lime as well. 
Oh, Britain, Lyme. Oh, and he's Lyme. not Irish. Callaway, now I just got it. Callahan. I just got yeah. it. Ah, yeah. I just got it as soon as Nick said it. Point. I got it as soon as he said that. All right. I'm very proud of myself. <laughs> there we go. So we talk about this character, um, Major Calloway, who is, I believe, from what I've read, the, the narrator of the book. Yes. Yeah, he, he's the narrator of the book. Um, and just read this quote. This is from a, a book I read about this, a kind of critical critical work. Uh, and this author wrote, Callaway wields power over an urban environment. Vienna can be watched, staked out, mapped, or photographed, but the power has a limitation. It freezes the city in a two-dimensional image or diagram. It's the stationary fixed power. It does not entirely govern the fugitive cities, which is dynamically three-dimensional in motion and topography. So the fugitive has an advantage. And I, I like that quote, this idea of Callaway wields power over like a two-dimensional version of the city in a three-dimensional city. And I was wondering what people thought about, um, about that response to Callaway or Callaway more generally. Doesn't he have control just over his quadrant, right? Because they, or maybe three quarters of the quadrants. They said the Russians seem to be no man's land, but he seemed to have some influence in the other areas of Vienna. You have influence in your zone and in the center. There's an interesting international yeah. section. Yeah. Um, I, I don't mean exactly he has official bureaucratic authority over each zone or over X portion of each zone. But, you know, he does like work with the Russians we see when dealing with Anna Schmidt's influence, uh, influence, yeah, influence. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so but he still is the face, the figure of authority in a world that's um, kind of structured on uh, escape or um, maybe quiet rebellion against that authority. And so I was wondering what people thought about that kind of power dynamic going on in the future. He seems to be well respected by everybody, right? Nobody, nobody insults him, or you know, they, they, everybody will talk to him. Everybody will work with him for his part. Mm -hmm. I mean, Holly doesn't really like him very much, but that's, yeah. <laughs> you know, he he actually mm -hmm. openly disrespects him. But I think that's mm -hmm. more. And I mean, maybe this gets to your point a little bit, Tom. I mean, the 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 idea that the idea. I mean, part of the reason why Holly likes Harry so much is because you know he sort of. Holly is in many ways actually a pretty straight-laced guy, but, you know, and, and obviously Harry is not and never has been. And he sort of likes that rebellious side of Harry, which is why he so much does not like um, Calloway. Um, mm -hmm. And I mean, and, and I think that that's, that's certainly true. It's an interesting idea that that's sort of this like two-dimensional versus three-dimensional. I think it's, it's I'm not quite sure I would phrase it that way, but it's, it's more, it's almost like Calloway certainly operates more in the, the you know as we you know KJ as you and I said shadowy it's certainly a shadowy film I think Calloway certainly operates in the light and is very much this kind of like he's out in the open he's he's very much um, and he's restricted because of that whereas you know this sort of underworld and and even that sort of gets to your three D point it's underneath even the last scene is in the sewers like he there's sort of this um, if he's operating on the surface there's a whole other side of the city and the other world that he has to operate within. Um, and, and I think that's part of the issues that he has throughout the film is that he can't, he has more trouble because he has to operate on the surface. He has to operate in the light. He, that's sort of his, his role. Whereas a lot of the stuff and why Holly is partially effective is because, you know, he's, he doesn't, he's not restricted in any way in sort of what he does or how he goes about it. 
Now, regarding the relationship between Holly and Major Calloway, I think you're both right at different parts of the movie. So I, I think that Holly learns to respect Major Calloway maybe towards the end, but they butt heads a lot along the way. Like even when they're going away from that, the, the actual burial of um, Harry Lyme, they're cordial. They may not be best friends. They're not going to have a, you know, a, a buddy uh, a comedy movie you know, spinoff. But I think there is something that, you know, kind of grew together throughout the whole movie. Whereas I think everyone else, to KJ's point, does respect that gentleman in the locale that they're in. But that is something that did adjust and adapt over time. Yeah, well, the, the reason for his uh, Holly's adventure, Holly and Calloway's eventual coming together is that um, Holly doesn't really understand what's actually happening. He doesn't understand where he, he is and that that Harry Lyme is not like selling watches or or tires from a car. He's on the black market. He's selling penicillin that's being watered down and, and causing like children to be injured, right, and die. Um, and I, you know, he he just once he's exposed to that, and once he learns exactly um, what uh, what Harry Lyme is doing, then he then he's kind of on board. And that seems to be, I think, why we end up liking Calloway is he's he is he understands that this is a lawless city and you're not going to stop that from happening. Um, we shouldn't pick up Anna Schmidt. Right. Like, let's leave her alone. However, let's stop the guy who is putting children in the hospital. Right. There are there are certain kind of um, there are reasons why you go into the sewer and there's reasons why you don't go into the sewer. Going after somebody like Harry Lyme is a reason to go into the sewer. You don't do that because, uh, you know, a, a woman is trying to avoid her Czechoslovakian citizenship so she doesn't get sucked up by the, the USSR, right? And I, I think that's, he ends up being kind of, even though he's like the official authority, he becomes a really good arbiter between the, um, the kind of open city that is Vienna and the uh, the hope for restriction that are these different governmental agencies that are attempting to divide it up. Yeah, I think there's still a significant level of resentment at the end, you, you know, because the basically Calloway's thing with Holly is that he kind of, you know, as you say, he kind of lifts the scales from his eyes in the sense that he kind of now sees. But, you know, Harry Lyme, I think he still sees him as his childhood hero. And so he's still certainly resentful. And maybe that's the point here is that, yes, he respects him, but he certainly is resentful of him and doesn't like him because sort of he's, you know, he's ruined his sort of fantasy of this, you know, guy that, you know, he's sort of idolized growing up. Um, and he's sort of, you know, yeah, I think to your point, he's sort of ruined what was, you know, a great part of his life, I think is, is sort of how Holly sees it. The perfect scene to represent that is after Calloway says, oh, yeah, I'll take you to the airport. I just got to stop here for five minutes. And then he shows them all the kids who are like dying and injured. And then they're in the car ride. And he's like, uh, Holly's pretty much says, fine. Like, OK, you have it your way. You know, we'll, we'll do something about this, like begrudgingly. So I think that perfectly exemplifies, even though he knows what this guy's trying to accomplish. He doesn't quite like it at that point. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it reminds me, there's a, I, I saw this one time in, in one of the things I've read about this movie over the years is there's a scene where there's something happened where Carol Reed was out with um, a bunch of his like friends 
um, when they when this movie was sort of premiering in like whatever 1949. And um, he said like everybody in the crowd was like all you know like oh that movie was great and everyone sort of enjoyed it. And he said a couple of his friends were sort of like very quiet and sort of didn't. And he was like, did you guys not like it? And he basically they said something along the lines of they were like, well we were in Vienna after the war and they were like we worked in a hospital and we sold penicillin on the black market they're like we were actually people who we, we sold it to the black market people and then he goes we didn't really think about what they probably did with it afterwards and he's like and now he goes these guys were suddenly like this movie actually kind of just showed us what we might have done um and so in many ways it reminds me of that this sort of like that sort of a real life example of like what happened in these to this character of yeah you might not but suddenly you realize that something you've done or somebody you've idolized or anything like that is suddenly this like uh, has a darker side to it yeah i read that story too <laughs> uh there, yeah there's also um there was also a, a big case that occurred in in 46 where um a few it was german or german army people who um who had managed to stay in vienna by selling fake penicillin and have made, I think like $130,000 doing it uh, or the equivalent of that today. And um, yeah, but I, I read that story too about like two people, who, you know, Carol Reed's friends were like, oh my God, that was us. <laughs> so yeah, apparently Whoops. this, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it, yeah, I guess it's this idea of like, you don't like the person who takes the, uh, who takes the scales off your eyes, right? You're never going to really bond with that person. Um, yeah. And it's, yeah, I guess it's, it's kind of like the, the autumn movie, right? I mean, the bad guy gets punished in the end, but there is no, you know, there is no reconciliation for any of these people. Um, there is no return to the glory days. So going into the final question, we have Nick with two points, Pat with one and KJ with zero. And this last question is worth three points and we're in the French zone. So bonjour. <laughs> the question is who? It's time for question four. A song at Christmas, a place to study, a narrator's first name. Locked in. Locked in? Locked in. Okay. So since you locked in last bat, what do you have? Yeah, I don't know. Anna Schmidt? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> Why not? Uh, KJ, what do you have? Yeah, I have no idea. Is it Harry Lime? Oh, Harry Lime. That is a good character. Oh, I know that one. <laughs> Nick, what do you have? I have the director, Carol Reed. And Nick, you got it. The guy who's narrating at the beginning is Carol Reed. Um, so it's Carol is a Christmas Carol. A Carol is also a study Carol and his first name. I want to talk a little bit about the the style of this movie my, my word at the beginning here was dutch like dutch angle because everything is on a tilt and everything is yeah exactly uh is to the side for our audience who obviously can see this kj has tilted his computer in celebration of uh, of this film um and i was wondering what you guys thought of, of the style of the film and the way it was put forward the lighting was amazing shadowy perhaps it was shadowy it was the shadows were cool i mean the lighting was great the dutch angles were annoying i don't know frustrating distracting i what did you guys think about the dutch angles why i don't know why somebody would do that once let alone more than once i think the tripod was broken so that's just what I'm glad it broke but, at the same angle every scene 
Yeah. But I, I mean, I, you know, the idea of like the, the Dutch angle is something is askew, right? Or something is, is off, um, you know? And so it, that's kind of this world. This, this is a world that is kind of sliding or off center. And, and yeah, that's what the, the, the angle represents. And it's also kind of like the, the morality of the characters is sort of tilted. The, the kind of policing system is, is tilted or off. Um, and the perspective of the cent central character, not only in terms of he's trying to solve a mystery and he doesn't you know, know what the mystery is at the beginning, um, but his, his perception of even what the type of mystery he's looking at is, is off or changed. He's not actually looking for the, the murderer of Harry Lyme. He ends up looking for Harry Lyme, the man himself. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's what I think that, you know, the Dutch angles are, are representing or why they're useful. I had no problem with that or the shadowiness of this movie. My word, which may not actually be a real word, was subtitleless. And the reason I brought that word up or made it up is while I was watching this, regardless of what language people were speaking, a lot of times I didn't know what they were saying. Um, Holly Martins, I probably understood him the best, but I, there was a point where I was watching this with my wife and I said, don't worry, I don't know what they're saying either. And then I said, they're speaking a different language. They have a thick accent. So I felt like I was missing elements of what was trying to be portrayed just by the way people spoke. And I think it might have been the times too, even even straight up English, American, whatever you want to call it. They spoke very fast. So I found myself having trouble like really focusing in on all the dialogue, especially preparing for these type of episodes. I thought I was going to miss key points, which I probably did. So that was my whole thing. I had trouble. And I'd, I'd love to hear if I was the only one who had trouble, like, literally hearing what everyone was saying. I love that aspect of the film. I thought that was a great way for us to get into um, Vienna uh, and, and be, a, and be a, a foreigner there trying to bounce around the city like Holly was. I really enjoyed that. Uh, we didn't know what people were saying. They could have been saying anything. And, and even like you said, when, when, they, when they were speaking languages that we knew it was still we had to focus and concentrate just like if you were traveling that's that's kind of a similar experience i think i was okay with the foreign languages but when there were people speaking english and i really couldn't follow along and i'm not talking about the the baron the austrian with a thick english accent i do agree with you that adds that feeling to it but when they were either from england or the united states and i still had trouble um yeah, that was my only thing. But I still enjoyed it. Don't get me wrong. It is immersive, KJ, like you're saying. But that was the one thing I, I think I could have enjoyed subtitles on this one, <laughs> even for just the English. <laughs> yeah, I, de I definitely think with the foreign language one that, that that's obviously very intentional that, you know, especially with like, you know, the scene we have like the little kid kind of yelling at him and all this stuff, which is like, you know, you're, you're supposed to be that, that you're figuring it out what they're saying as, you know, yep. the other characters are translating it for you. Um, and, you know, my guess is that, yeah, I mean, some of the English is that it, it's probably more a product of the time. Like, it's very much that film noir kind of like wise cracking back and forth kind of fast talking strat you know, thing going on. So I suspect that's probably a product of the time, um, time period a bit of, you know, it's, it, it, there's like a great, um, it's not Saturday Night Live. I think it was like a mad TV sketch where they kind of lampoon the film noir kind of thing of like people going back and forth like that. And it's got that, it's got that kind of crisp dialogue kind of quality to it 
I think if I wasn't preparing for this episode, I would have been completely fine. I just thought I was missing things. <laughs> and I was afraid they were things that Tom was going to bring up. You know what I didn't like? Uh, Orson Welles' dialogue. He was on an episode of West Wing. He would start talking before Holly finished the question. I thought it was a really weird way to represent oh, uh, um, Harry Lyme. Really? You didn't yeah. like the, the Orson Welles performance? No, it, he just he wow. started <laughs> okay. a half a beat too quick every time. I think that's even that. I mean, I mean, guess is that's intentional too. Is that Holly? You know that that he's supposed to always that Holly kind of follows him, and you know that the Harry Lyme kind of con- is always stepping on him. Um, you know, they they make a fairly pointed reference. I think at one point, I can't remember if this is in the movie or the book. I think it's in the movie that they make a reference that like any time that Harry used to always get in trouble, or or Holly used to always get in trouble for Harry. You know, there's something about like, remember the the gambling joint when, you know, you knew the back way out and I didn't, you know, that there's always a kind of suggestion. I think in many ways, the suggestion here is that that's why Harry invited Holly to go to Vienna, because that's the whole thing is Holly only goes there because Harry invited him. And the, you know, the implication in some ways is that Harry was going to throw Holly under the bus for this whole thing, but he got, basically got trapped too quickly. And so he had to fake his own death before he could kind of throw Holly under the bus. So in many ways, I think that that you're right. He is kind of constantly stepping on him, but that's probably intentional that he's trying that basically he's always pushing him down to some extent. Ah, got it. So Harry is always one step ahead of Holly yeah. and they're showing that with the dialogue. My that guess is sense. that's probably what it is, but that that's the implication of that. I actually missed that a little bit about why Holly was actually there. And that makes complete sense yeah he's, he says at the very very beginning he makes a reference to the fact that he went because he because he says like oh it's when he's going through customs when when holly's going through customs and he says what's your why are you here and he says i'm getting a job my friend my friend harry has a job for me here and he never says what the job is or why you know because it's you know, he's like why would harry have bothered to bring this dude here like this guy <laughs> is clearly not equipped to help him in any way with what he's doing and the reason he's like mm-hmm. doing it is because he needs because he knows he's about to get caught and so he's going to throw this guy into the bus the same way he's done with all of his other schemes in the past and he discards people when they're no longer uh needed so even his girlfriend she still had hope she was still in love with her and, and he's the one who framed her to to get the scent off of him yeah he, he's remarkably good at using people <laughs> and getting rid of them and you know, like the orderly is another one who he got the penicillin penicillin from who you know becomes his his dead body. <laughs> um, yeah, but I, 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 I'm actually, I sort of love that performance. And it's one of those things where I, I think Orson Welles treated it about as serious. He treated it less seriously than we probably treat this podcast. Um, <laughs> apparently like they couldn't, like they, they kept trying to tr- track him down and like apparently Carol Reed like had to get him on the plane himself to come to come do the the shoot uh I think he made like a hundred thousand dollars in 1949 money um but the the original person they had for it was uh do you know who the original person that um I think Selznick wanted to cast was uh Noel Coward which is odd casting (laughs) yeah that would have been weird it would have been Noel Coward and um Cary Grant and Cary Grant oh, won too okay. much money. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, Cary Grant. Would have, I, I could Cary, see that. Yeah, I mean, Cary Grant. I guess you could kind of see that. But yeah, yeah. I think Joseph Cotton's I, a better fit, but Joseph Cotton's got a bit more of the bumbly quality. But yeah, Cary Grant's like too handsome for that role. Uh, you don't like Joseph the, Cotton? The, the, you don't think he's a you don't think he's a handsome man? <laughs> he, he's he's all right. Nothing <laughs> a Dutch angle can fix. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a little shadowy. Uh, 
Yeah. I think the irony there is um, Cary Grant replaced, Joseph Cotton originated uh, the, the Philadelphia story on Broadway. Um, and then Cary Grant took that role over for the film. So there's a little, uh, you know, exchange later on. Um, so what do you guys think about the score? Enjoyed it. I enjoyed <laughs> yeah, we it. We have to bring that up. <laughs> I, love... <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I love I that really, score. I, I, I love it too. Um, I watched it with with my girlfriend and she was like, by the end of the movie, she was she's like, what is the point of this? You know, why can they get a second instrument to 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 accomplish it? Um, but we end up having like a discussion about that because to me, it's sound. I, I think I just associate that zither sound with this movie. So to me, it sounds like Eastern Europe or, you know. Austria, you know, more or less. Um, but to her, it sounded much more kind of like French gypsy. And there is a sort of sound of, if you've ever heard of like Django Reinhardt music or anything like that, there is this kind of French gypsy sound to it. Um, and I, I'm guessing that it is, it, it's kind of, uh, it's, it's like a little, boo it sounds like a little boozy. It's a little, um, I don't want to say off center or off tilt, but it's the Dutch sound. It's slippery, it's, but it's slippery. It's slippery. It's very, yeah. yeah, it's slippery. Mm -hmm. Isn't it more of like an amalgamation though? Because like they're in kind of an uncharted territory with these quadrants and all this. And it just, what would it fit if you had something tied to just like, like something's British sounding or, or French sounding or this, it's kind of like an in-betweener, you know, just like, Hey, that's what this music is. KJ, yeah. what was your opinion? Cause we all seem to enjoy it and you're smiling. So I don't think you had the same opinion. No, I, I, I enjoyed it. Um, and I listened to it. Otherwise it sounded great, but I don't think it fit the movie. It sounded, or the, really? the instrument might've fit the movie, but the melody was, it was something out of like curb your enthusiasm or maybe the little rascals even. So the whole time I was just waiting for like half punchlines at the end of all these scenes where pretty serious things are happening. But <laughs> like, it was, it I was think like that's actually worked. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, Roxanne had the same response. She had the exact same response. She's like, this is supposed to be serious. Why is this this mu music, this kind of somewhat, um, you know, major? It belongs in a comedy. Yeah, I think it worked. I, yeah, I agree I with Nick and Pat. I, I really, yeah, I, I really like that. Um, I don't know why it worked, but it did. I mean, I the because I I love that I actually have that I have that playlist on my Spotify. Like I actually listen to this soundtrack independently of this film because I like that soundtrack so much. I, I remember reading one of the things it's somewhere you know like this is like again like 15 years ago when I when I was doing this movie in one of my classes that I, I think part of what they were trying to do and maybe this is why it works at least is that they were trying to kind of harken back a little bit to an older age of Vienna kind of thing where Vienna was this um, and even the language thing I think gets to that that there was sort of the sense that you know before the war Vienna was this city where like that was where all the cultures kind of came together and so sort of the Austro-Hungarian Empire kind of thing where you could you'd hear you know 10 different languages walking down the street like you could have heard French and German and English and you know Yiddish and all these languages it would have just been this whole amalgam there and you would have heard all that where that's kind of dying out after the war because the culture just got so destroyed and that this music is a little bit, and, and that's interesting, I hadn't heard Gypsy before, but yeah, it is almost trying to get that that Eastern European-y feel, like the Hungarian feel to it is what they were trying mm -hmm. to do with it. Um, and that might be, and I think that's why it works to some extent because it has this sort of older 
twangy quality to it that sort of is meant to harken back to an older era of Vienna. Yeah, and if you you think of like the Hungarian sound as like Brahms Hungarian dances and things like that, it's supposed to, it's a music of that time but you know the hung the term hungarian in like classical music it always means just kind of looking east and looking to like a magical or unknown space it's not necessarily specifically the people of hungary or, or something like that and i think that that's a really good point that's a really interesting point that the music harkens back to this older era but at the same time um yeah it's like yeah an older era in Kind of imagining itself um, fantastically, um, but it's also a pared down sound, right? It's not a whole orchestra. It's not. Um, it's not accompanied by violins. It's it's this old sound reduced to this one instrument, and a wonderful instrument, and it's a great sound. But it's not. It's not. You know, it's not a full orchestra anymore. I mean, even the reveal that Harry Lime's alive, right? So we got the cat by his feet, and I don't remember if the camera came up or if he stepped out of the shadows or whatever it was, but then ding, 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 ding. Like, here he is. Oh, you didn't like that, though? But it's it's such like a big moment, right? And, and like, it, it should be underscored by that. It's not, we're not, it's not like they're playing the zither when they're showing the penicillin children. <laughs> they're, you know, it's, it's, it's <laughs> here he is, you know, it's the big reveal. He, he got exposed when um, Holly was yelling in the streets and a lady turned a light on and that made the shadow disappear. Yeah, but the, and then the music to me sounded like that was the punchline of the joke. But no, it's the reveal of the main villain. It, it was the, it's the reveal of the movie that Harry is, you know, still alive. I would have expected a pom pom instead of... Oh, but I think know, that's what makes the movies much more interesting, right? It, it's not, um, you know we're kind of learning that this is a, you know, not a, not a conventional mystery. This is not a conventional, um, not a conventional sleuth. Uh, you know, this is not a conventional space. You know, the sleuth knows his space. This is an incompetent sleuth in an unknowable space. Maybe KJ wants some like Halloween synthesizer action going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I guess my only other sleuth experience is um, like the upright cat Marlowe. So maybe I'm just at a disadvantage that the, you know, the, these overturns of these tropes are lost on me because I'm, I, I got to watch more movies. <laughs> H.A.'s noir experience is our advertisement for Upright Cats. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So with the end of our quiz section, we have uh, KJ with zero points, uh, Pat with one point, and Nick with five points. Congratulations, Nick, for a stunning victory. I didn't know what I was doing in round one, but finally figured out in round two. Tom, thanks so much for the wonderful riddles, not just because I won this episode, but thank you. It was very different and, and, and quite enjoyable. And we'll be right back after this quick commercial break for Movie Rants. Have an idea for an ad? Is it a fake product? We'll air it. Send us an audio clip of your fake ad, and after it goes through our rigorous and strict reviewing process, we'll fit it into an episode. Don't have an idea for an ad? Make one anyway, and send it to fakeads at talkingpicturestrivia.com or call 201-467-8679 and leave a voicemail of your ad. You'd sound really good on radio. This ad requesting fake ads is a real ad requesting you to send us fake ads. Seriously, send us your fake ads. And we're back. It's time for Movie Rant. 
So I think KJ is going to disagree with this, but my favorite part of this movie is the Orson Welles performance, even though it doesn't come in until, what what would you say, about 60, 65 minutes into the film. Um, However, I think that's what people, at least I as a kid when I first saw this, took away from the movie was this, you know, kind of grand, smooth performance with, yeah, that he gives. Um, and I'm, I'm really surprised, Kedra, that you, you didn't like it. <laughs> I, I, you know, that- You didn't like the music. And, and the, music, like the music, the music, which I love too. Um, <laughs> so yeah, what, what can we say about Orson Welles in this film? Well, what I'll say is for some reason in my brain, this is a first watch for me, and I've seen Orson Welles and other things, but for some reason I have the, like older, heftier Orson Welles in my brain. So when they did the reveal and he was like clean shaven and not as big as I thought he was going to be, it kind of messed with my mind a little bit, but it makes sense at when this was made in his career. But it just was funny to me that I had a different vision in my mind of what Orson Welles was going to look like. I, I think most of my Orson Welles experience has is the brain from Pinky and the Brain. So I think I also need to, um, you know, I, I think I was woefully unprepared for this, <laughs> this movie. Um, so I, he, again, he felt like a West Wing character to me. Have you guys ever seen West Wing? I, I've never seen it. I only walk through the room when it's on, but mm-hmm. it's, it's. And they walk through the room in West Wing, right? Constantly, constantly. <laughs> I'll take the Dutch angles over that constantly moving camera in West Wing. It never stops. The dialogue never stops. They just keep going and saying and almost interrupting each other each time. Um, and again, this just kind of reminded me of that. So what about the performance really stuck in your mind, Tom? I, I think he is having so much damn fun in, in the role, even in the reveal when we first see him. Um, you know, the light comes on and he's caught, but he has just, just this smirk on his face. <laughs> once, you know, once the cat comes over and, you know, or um, once Holly sees him anyway. And, I, you know, he, he just seems to be glory, uh, glorifying, uh, gloating in, you know, being able to kind of pull this off, right? Because it's it's this movie that he like got a ton of money to do, um, and he didn't particularly work hard at it. <laughs> you know, for he, he he just kind of did it, and he did put in that monologue about the the cuckoo clock. Um, that that was his contribution, and I think he worked on the lighting a little bit, but mostly got a ton of money at a point in his career when he's broke, and so he just kind of floats into Vienna and makes a ton of money with a smirk on his face, giving this, you know, giving this easy performance and then drifting off. It, it's kind of like the, the, the history mirrors the fiction at this point. Um, he, he's just living as Harry Lyme, even in his own career, albeit not killing children, but, you know, as far as, you know. Yeah, I mean, it, the, the thing I find interesting about the performance is that it's like, he's, as you point out, he obviously doesn't come into it for about an hour, but even then he doesn't, he doesn't even really have particularly much screen time with the exception of that one scene in the Ferris wheel. He's not really in most of the rest of it. Um, even when he's there, he doesn't really talk very much or do very much. Um, so it is in, in many ways, it's a, it's a whole, you know, his, his fame in the film is really based on that one scene. Um, and it is a very, it, it's got a lot of, you know, sort of substance in that, in that one scene. Um, but I guess I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily call it my favorite part of the movie, but I do think, you know, it's, it's certainly one of the most famous parts of the movie. That scene is, is certainly extremely famous and probably the most famous thing in the movie. But I think there's a lot of other really fun parts of it 
um, than just that one scene, but it's certainly probably one of his most iconic performances, I guess, I, you know, even though he's barely in it. So it's almost, it's got that, it's got that sort of um, Anthony Hopkins and Silence of the Lambs where he's barely in the movie. And yet it's probably one of the, you know, the performances that they're mm -hmm. most famous for. Talking about scenes that Orson Welles was in, Tom mentioned this earlier that Orson Welles, I don't know if you said all his dialogue, but he did write all his dialogue. And the other thing that he gets credited with the idea was at the end uh, when he shot and he's trying to get out of the, uh, the sewer through the grate with his fingers through the grate. That was actually Wells's idea. However, the fingers were actually Carol Reed's because Wells was no longer on site. Again, as Tom said, they had a tough time uh, tracking yeah. him down to film this movie. And I think that is a very iconic part of this film, the fingertips trying to escape. He can get out of everything, but this is the one time he's still stuck in his prison there. And it will be his final, final uh, hurrah. <laughs> Yeah, that the what did you guys think of the the sewer scene or the sewer system? The the use of that in that final climax to the movie. I thought it was good, but I also thought it may have went on a little mm -hmm. too long. But I think that was what they were trying to do. I was going to say, yeah, I think it's it, it's a bit drawn out. Um, I think they certainly could have um, shortened it a bit. I'm not quite sure why they had it so yeah, long. But... Yeah. I really like the way it looked. Um, and I, I keep harping on the soundtrack, but it was a little bit of Looney Tunes <laughs> with that soundtrack. People just kind of running in and out of doors. Yeah. Like we were pretty disoriented down there. And I think you were supposed to be disoriented, mm -hmm. right? Who's where, what, what's going on. Um, my understanding, it's a pretty crazy sewer system they have in Vienna. Um, but yeah, I really, I, I enjoyed it thoroughly. Again, except that, that soundtrack, I just had a big smile on my face the whole time. Especially when they try to drop an anvil mm -hmm. on him, right? <laughs> 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 I guess the other thing to bring up now uh, would be Anna Schmidt and her her role in the film, you know, as, as Lime's lover, and then you know Joseph Cotton is trying to to romance her. Uh, they actually did a movie they shot before this. Joseph Cotton and um, what's your name, Anna uh, uh, Alida Valley, who they, they had done a, a movie for RKO, which they had just canned. I just put it away and then once this movie came out they released it immediately just like we're, we're, we're going to profit on this um but anyway so what do you think of of anna's kind of role in this and you know how that functions i mean i think from the perspective of harry or, or, or holly i mean that that there is um th that it goes back to the thing of like holly's sort of hero worship of harry that this is and they they make a reference at one point that that um Harry had stolen Holly's uh, girlfriend mm -hmm. at one point. And so I think this in many ways is, it, it just, it sort of serves as a, because if she's not there, he doesn't really have any direct tie, you know, or personal tie to Harry in Vienna, other than these sort of, you know, odd characters like the Baron and these other kind of people. Whereas this, I think, gives him a, an actual personal tie to Harry in the city at the time that he's there so if she's not there it's it it, it doesn't really mm -hmm. work as far as the film goes because he needs to have some tie back to 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 harry and it, and i think in that way she almost serves as a proxy for his sort of his love of harry sort of gets transferred to her in many ways is kind of what i i, I think that's the bulk of the point yeah. of, the role, um, of the character and how she functions in it yeah i agree with all that i also think it shows us how dangerous it is to be part of the underground world because she's at risk throughout a lot of this movie 
because she's in some way she's part of that underground underground world um with the fake passport um being there illegally it also kind of makes vienna a little bit less safe i think without her right uh holly doesn't ever seem to be in trouble for anything he does whereas people are getting in trouble for the illegal things they are doing yeah he could always leave he kind of shows us yeah he could always leave um that's exactly what I was going to say, Tom. If, if she wasn't there, even if I personally think it was one of the weaker subplots, but I do understand why they needed it in this movie, he would just be, oh, my friend's dead. Okay, I'm going to go back to the U.S. Like, no reason to stay if she was not involved. Yeah, I mean, I think he gets involved with the porter, but I... I, I... He gets involved. Yeah, he gets involved before he meets really her because he wants to figure out who killed his yeah, friend. Yeah, because the porter says uh, there's a third man. Yeah. Oh, that's true. But I'm saying the reason he actually decides to stay longer. Yeah, I, I think that I, I think to Pat's point, she is, um, and you know what he says about like Harry stole my girl, uh, you know, and she ends up accidentally calling Holly Harry. I think more than once. I think she does it twice. It's like you could at least get my name right. Uh, th- there is this idea of um, her as this this intermediary between the two men. Like, and, and Harry sees, or Holly rather, I did it. Uh, Holly sees her as a, um, like you were saying, Pat, as sort of um, a means of, of getting, at, uh, getting at Harry. And I don't mean getting at as, as attacking, but getting close to him, but also sort of outcompeting him in a certain way. Like he's able to kind of steal Harry's girl, even though Harry is presumably dead at this point. Um, and so she becomes this kind of uh, figure between the two men. And, you know, that's, that's kind of interesting because she pushes against that role, right? And she kind of, her whole thing is she ends up rejecting Holly over and over again, right? She rejects him because he is betraying Harry. And, you know, that, that carries over until the end when she ultimately rejects him, when she just walks away from him. Um, and so she sort of asserts, I think she asserts a, uh, she asserts herself beyond being this proxy to get to Harry, right? Cause she just, she doesn't want to fill that role and, and she sort of refuses. And I think if they had become romantic, Holly and, and um, Anna, then, you know, that wouldn't be the case, right? Then she would be that that proxy, that way of getting at Harry, um, because he he gets with her, you know, he he romances her. But since he fails, and he fails pretty miserably, right? She's kind of disgusted by him by the by the end of the picture. Uh, that she ends up, I think, is is a far more interesting character than just, you know, the reason to hang around or the reason to get information about Harry, because she is able to kind of um, she's able to ha- have this. Uh, uh, independent agency, even though that isn't the focus of the film. Well, this was definitely a great watch, and I personally recommend it, even if you don't necessarily like the soundtrack like KJ. I'd like to once again congratulate myself in the most humble and gracious way possible for winning this week's episode. Doesn't happen all the time. Pat, thanks again for joining us today. Thank you for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you. And I'm sure we'll have you back at some time to keep up your most guest appearances record, but we shall see what season two has in store.
Thanks to our shadowy editor, KJ, who masterfully crafts these episodes. Check out our website, TalkingPicturesTrivia.com, for more information about us and our episodes. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as our YouTube channel. We are extremely grateful for any positive reviews as those help others like you find us. If you like what you hear, remember to like, comment, and subscribe to our show. What did you think of The Third Man? Leave a comment on our YouTube channel, and let's continue the conversation. Join us next time with our year in review with the Trivial Awards, where we will be handing out trivies for various categories as we wrap up season one. Should be a great show. See you then. Ding, 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 ding.